You're listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Ella Livingston. She's the owner of Coco Asante, a luxury chocolate producer committed to the bean-to-bar experience. Ella was born in Ghana, West Africa, into a family of educators, health practitioners, engineers, and cocoa farmers. Ella and her family emigrated to the United States when she was three. She majored in mathematics and minored in Japan studies at Spelman College in Atlanta. During her study abroad in Tokyo, Ella discovered Nama chocolate and the reputation Ghana has for growing the best cocoa beans. Ella is also an educator who continues to teach secondary math and STEM. Ella, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about high-quality chocolate and launching your business while you continue to teach, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? In my morning cup, honestly, would just be either water or tea. No coffee, no tea. Well, you said tea. I think for me, coffee, I use it when I really, really need it. But I try not to drink too much coffee because I can feel my hands shaking. You ever do decaf? I have not. I went to decaf few years ago because I like the flavor of coffee, but caffeine has that effect on me. Mm-hmm. And I get the pleasure of the flavor. And I guess psychologically, it tells me I'm waking up, <laughs> even though it doesn't have that same effect. You ever mix in any of your cocoa into? I do. I do. So one of my favorite things to do is either drop like a piece of dark chocolate bar or an espresso bonbon into my coffee. And it kind of gives it this like mocha I don't want to say latte, but like a mocha latte flavor. That sounds like a new product for you. Mm, I think so. Yeah. You would like my wife. I get home in the evening, her coffee cup's usually in the sink, Mm -hmm. soaking because of the dark chocolate and the other (laughs) mixtures she put in there. And the spoon is standing straight up so thick. So she's a chocoholic, and I know she'll get a particular interest in our conversation today. So you've got an interesting background. You emigrated from Ghana. You went to Spillman College, and now you're in the chocolate business. If you would, just kind of take us through those early years. I know you came here when you were three, but where did you guys first move to and how you got to where you are in Chattanooga today? Yeah, so when we first immigrated to the U.S., we moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And my earliest memories of Atlanta, Georgia was of my father working a lot because he was more so the sole provider, my mom taking care of us. And I don't know, I just have like faint memories of running around with a lot of little kids. I think my mom was a child caretaker, so she was like the neighborhood babysitter, if you will. And then after that, we spent a couple years in Michigan. My dad continued to go to school, got his degree. I think he worked as a pastor, which is what he did back in Ghana. And then my mom also went to school to do nursing, but she has a background in education and art. So she ended up going back into education and then also art as well. Um, Growing up, my parents tried to teach as much or I guess retain as much of our culture at home as possible. So we spoke the language. We ate the food. They would tell us, you know, hey, like back home, we have cocoa farms and this is what our family does. And so I knew that, you know, from growing up a little bit of what we do, but it didn't really it didn't really matter much to me because I was a kid. Right. What am I going to do with that information? I'm not in Ghana. We don't go back. And then afterwards, we went to Arizona, spent a couple years there. And then I decided to go to Spelman College, which is all women's HBCU. And that experience was, I think, the most life changing experience. If I didn't go to Spelman, I wouldn't have pursued education. I also wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to study abroad like I did. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the opportunities that I got 
came because I went to such an amazing school like Spelman. I think it's very underrated. I had never heard of HBCUs. I had never heard of an all-women's HBCU. But those who know, know. And a lot of the top 500 companies Mm -hmm. recruit from places like Spelman because they know what talent they bring. Did you choose Spelman because it was in Atlanta and you had originally lived in Atlanta? Or did you choose it because it was all-female and an HBCU? I chose it for the second reason. I remember touring because it was not on my list. My aunt just like suggested it to me before I knew what an HBCU was. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to be in Atlanta anyways. Let me go ahead and tour the school. And I remember going on the tour and I remember how beautiful the campus was. I mean, just stunning. And I remember the woman giving me a tour. She was a graduate of Spelman. And I remember her confidence. I remember how she spoke. I remember the grace that she had. I remember just how intelligent she was. And I was just like, if that's a Spelman woman, that's who I want to be. And it was literally that interaction that was a deciding factor of me deciding to go to Spelman. There's a lot of pride in not just HBCUs, but schools like Spelman mm-hmm. for exactly the reason you're, you're stating there. What did you get out of that? Not so much of it being an HBCU, but an all-female school. I think it being, it's hard to pull those two kind of separate because one thing that really stuck to me was the intersectionality of who I am. I can't necessarily separate my blackness from me being a woman. Both of them affect my experience. And so going to Spelman and all-women's HBCU, it felt like being in a safe cocoon. I, back in Arizona, I went to a high school where there were probably like five black kids. So my experience, it was great, but I always felt ostracized because of who I was. I heard a lot of ignorant things being said to me because of my skin color, because of my hair, because of the way I looked, because of the different foods that I ate. I remember one time I brought fried plantains and bean stew, one of my favorite foods. And somebody told me it looked like poop. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like really, really immature, really ignorant. But like it starts to it starts to get to you. I would imagine. Yeah. And then also like, you know, beauty standards. You weren't chosen as the dark skinned black girl. Right. So it was a very different journey. But in Spelman, I was safe. I was surrounded by women who, although all different shades of blackness from all over the world, all different types of experiences, different socioeconomic backgrounds. So it was very diverse in that aspect, but I felt safe. I didn't have to fight for my place as a black woman. I, I felt like I was at home and I didn't have to continuously like, you know, work twice, work three times as hard just to mm-hmm. prove that I was good. I was good enough. And so Spellman really kind of provided me a place to nurture and grow into my own. And then, of course, also just the great experiences. So what I appreciate about it being all women was that across the street was an all male (laughs) school, Morehouse College. Right. So they're getting that same experience. But then we bridge together and we do a lot. So we have classes where I'm not just in there with all girls, but kids from Morehouse are over here taking our classes. I'm over there taking their classes and we're doing activities and homecoming and market Wednesdays together. So it didn't feel like you were at a women's college per se because we interacted so much with the other school. Yeah, it sounds like a great experience. Yeah, absolutely amazing. I mean, I would love it if my daughter got that experience. I'm not going to force it, but I would love it if she got that experience. And even to this day, I haven't been to Spelman in so many years, but I still benefit from being a Spelman woman. That sisterhood extends way beyond the four years that you're there. And I've seen women, Spelman women come in the clutch for each other in ways that 
I haven't seen elsewhere. Yeah, it's an interesting term, sisterhood, because it does become like a family. And one thing I've noticed in, in talking to a lot of different people is, particularly on the HBCU side, there is a more long-term connection with those you attended school with, that common experience and that interconnect. Yes. Have you found that with your friends? Yes, yes. I definitely have lifelong friends, and I'm just so grateful for that experience. I don't think going in, I realize how impactful it would be for me. Yeah. And each year you're out, it probably gets a little bit more impactful. Mm-hmm. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have two brothers. So at home, your parents kept alive the culture of Ghana and made sure you knew your family's history and what the family did for a living. Cocoa farmers. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So this is actually something that I'm still continuing to learn more and more about each day. I think as I get further in my business and I reach certain steps, I'm like, okay, now it's time for me to ask these type of questions. But from what I know on both sides of the family, we do have cocoa farmers, but I'll focus particularly on my mom's side. And the reason's because Ghana is a matriarchal society. So land passes down through women. So, I did not know this. Yeah. So almost complete opposite of every other society. in the- Exactly. Which I can talk so much about that. It's so fascinating because although Ghana is very, you know, like, It is male dominated. And I think there is that stereotype of like African men dominating African women. But if you look at it, specifically Ghana, we have like the highest level of women entrepreneurs. We value the input of women and then most particularly land and things of value being passed down through the women. So on my mom's side, we have, I mean, acres and acres of land. She told me the number, but I can't remember. So she has her own particular plots of land. And then the family has like hundreds of acres of land just all over the wow. Kumasa area in Ghana. And on some of the land, we, you know, farm cacao. Some of them we use for other different crops. Some of it we, you know, built family houses on. Some of it just sits unused. And the rule of thumb for our family is as long as you don't sell it, you can use the land for whatever you want. But the matriarchal aspect. So my cousins who are born from my uncle, although they are women, they cannot claim our family land because they don't come from a woman. In my mom's generation, there's, I believe, two, her and my aunt. In my generation, I believe there's three of us. And then in my daughter's generation, I think now there may be three. So there aren't very many, you know, two in one generation, yeah. three. And it sounds, oh, decent. But my mom has like 12 siblings. So yeah. out of 12, only having like two who can access that is. So your mom's brothers cannot claim They cannot claim. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't do anything with the land or it's actually my uh, one of my uncles that kind of knows the most about our family history. And so in order to find out what land is ours, the paperwork, which area, where is it demarcated? I have to go to him because he's the one who has all that knowledge. So as I go through this journey, it's becoming more and more important to me that I have to take time to learn more about my family. What a great way to trace your family's history without doing one of those DNA tests. <laughs> God knows what they do with that. Yeah. Correct me, cocoa or cacao? It's actually both. So cacao is the product before it gets roasted. And okay. then once it gets roasted, kind of like how coffee beans get roasted. Mm-hmm. Once it gets roasted, we call it cocoa. So your business, cocoa asante or cacao? <laughs> <laughs> cocoa asante. So the C-O-C-O-A is cocoa and then C-A-C-A-O, they just kind of flip the A's and the O's, is the cacao. And the reason I wanted to learn a little bit more about not just Spillman College, but Ghana and the cacao portion of that is when you were at Spillman, you went to Japan and you discovered Nama chocolate. Talk up a little bit about that, how that kind of changed your expectations or experience. Actually, one of my 
teachers encouraged me to apply in. A lot of international students st- would study abroad. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was dual degree engineering. So I was mathematics oh. and engineering. And I knew that doing study abroad would extend my time. But I was like, let me just go ahead and give it a shot. So I went and it was an amazing experience because I got to experience Japan from a totally different perspective. I went to a sister college called Tsuda College in Tokyo, Japan, and I was there for an entire year. When I went, I was like, I mean, elementary Japanese. I could introduce myself. I knew the alphabet. I could recognize some basic kanji and katakana, which is like their characters. But that's it. When I got there, I was forced, not forced, (laughs) I had to take my normal international studies classes, but I also had to take my math classes in Japanese with other Japanese students and a Japanese teacher. I was the only foreign student in my math classes. You like a challenge, don't you? Boy, I don't even know. I had no choice because I had to give my credits, right? I didn't want to extend it too long. And so you're taking engineering and math, which is hard enough, but we're going to teach it to you in Japanese. Yeah. Yeah, I would sit in the classroom and honestly, in like the first three, four or five months, it was just flying over my head. But I would copy down everything that the teacher wrote down and then I would go back and translate it with a dictionary to English. And then I would take my English textbook and I would find the topic and then I would teach myself and then go back and then complete the assignments in English with as much Japanese as I could and then submit it to the teacher because, you know, these are math teachers. They're not English teachers. So I didn't want to make their job more difficult for them. Luckily, some of them had grace on me and would give me my assessments in English. But I was so used to like copying it back into the Japanese that I would do a mix of both. But by the time I left, I was fluent. I was traveling by myself. Wow. I had a job. I had my own bank account. I mean, I was yeah, living. You, you were immersed in the culture. Very much are, so. Are you still fluent? Not at all. Have you retained enough? Could you get a beer and find the bathroom in Japan? That's always yeah, the important. Yeah, I can. <laughs> that, that I can do. And the weird thing is I knew I was in Japan for a long time when I started dreaming in Japanese. Dreaming like, in Japanese? I was dreaming in Japanese. Now, you got to tell me a little bit about that. What does that entail? Is that just the narration? Or? Yeah, it's the narration. And it's like weird because it's a dream, but I was aware that I was dreaming. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, I'm not speaking English. I'm speaking Japanese. This person is communicating Japanese to me. And I fully understand everything. And I'm able to communicate everything. Wow. No English. And I was just like... This is amazing. And I had taken Japanese for like two years prior to that and just retained elementary level. So it was fascinating what being fully immersed could do. And I think I've counted up. I've said, wow, 27 times oh, now. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, that when I say Spellman changed everything, it changed everything. What a great experience. It was. I always encourage if you have the opportunity to go, go. Travel is so important for reducing ignorance in people. Absolutely. I've seen other cultures and seen, you know what, we're so much alike, even though we might have a difference in language, we might have a difference in where we live. Exactly. And then you also appreciate those differences because you can see where, you know, going back home, we could do better. What I appreciate about Japan was you didn't see, not to say homelessness is not an issue, but it's not prevalent. Coming from Atlanta, I'm Homelessness is an issue, but you didn't see a lot of that in Japan. You saw how they valued harmony and people and society, and that was very different. I began to appreciate that. And once again, not to say Japan does not have its own problems, because it definitely does. But it was great to see the differences and how active people were. Um, I mean, I was probably eating more than normal because I was doing boxing and all these other activities. But like weight was falling off me so easily. And then I came back to the U.S. and... It just skyrocketed. Welcome wow. to my world. <laughs> you, you can't keep weight off in the U.S., but there it was yeah. just the food Because you're so active different. and the food's healthy exactly. and prepared differently and you're doing so many different things. 
Spillman got you to Japan. Your family background with cacao and cocoa. Tell me about discovering Nama chocolate and how that kind of triggered your brain to say, wait a second, I've got a history here. Yeah. Anytime somebody would say, hey, they wouldn't say, where are you from? They would say, where are you born? And so I would say Ghana. And the first thing they would associate with Ghana was chocolate. And I was like, why are they saying that? (laughs) And I was like, wait a minute. I think my mom told me about this. But once again, that didn't mean anything to me. So I remember one day I, for some reason, ended up in a district called Ginza District. It's a super ritzy, super rich, very fancy And I walked into this one retail location. And the thing about Japan is the customer service, superb. You can't walk into a place without being greeted. So you walk into the store and the sales associate will bow and say, welcome. And you bow back and say, thank you. And so I'm I'm looking around and I'm just like, okay, I see this beautiful chocolate. You know what? Let me just, let me just get that box right there. They packed it up really nice. It was a beautiful box. I didn't know what I was going to have. Like I knew it was just dark chocolate, but I didn't know anything other than that. Up to that time, I think the most fancy chocolate to me was like Lindor, right? Mm-hmm. Put it in the freezer and then you just put it in your mouth and let it know. It's like, oh my gosh, bougie, right? <laughs> I didn't know anything. Oh my gosh. When I got back to my dorm and I had this little mini little fork and I took it and I grabbed one of the cubes. There were 12 cubes in there, dusted lightly with, you know, cocoa, cocoa powder, I should say. And I put one in my mouth and it just melted and it was sweet, but not too sweet. It was rich. It was decadent. It was smooth. It was so smooth. It was so smooth. <laughs> and I was just like, I mean, the, the sounds I was making, oh my gosh, like yeah. it was so good. And I savored that box. First of all, because it was $20. And second of all, because it was so good. And I remember saying to myself, I'm going back. A two hour train ride, changing, you know, to different trains and different lines. I'm going back because this chocolate was that good. And it provided such an amazing experience. I'm a college student. But I will take $20 for one small little box of chocolate because it was that good. Not a chocoholic at all. I'm not the person to really just normally go and buy chocolate. So the fact that I had this amazing experience and I wanted this treat was just so different. And that chocolate was sourced from Ghana? I'm not sure about Nama particularly. Mm -hmm. It was processed in Mm -hmm. Japan and whatnot, but I'm not sure if they sourced it from Ghana. Most likely they did either Ghana or the Ivory Coast because 70% of the world's cacao supply comes from those two countries. So Mm -hmm. most likely they did. As I had that experience, then people constantly telling me Ghana chocolate, Ghana chocolate. I was like, why don't I do this? Why don't I start my own chocolate company? Right? Yeah. I used to say chocolate factory. And I would tell my friends that. And they would get super excited. Yeah, when you start your own chocolate factory, we'll buy from you. So that's where the idea started. So you graduate, you go to teach and come to Chattanooga. Is yeah. that the path? Yeah. So I came back to Spelman. I had some experiences teaching while in Japan and I kind of changed my path. And I had enough credits to get a minor in Japan study. So I went ahead and got that minor. And then I ended up in Chattanooga because my background is in mathematics. I don't mm-hmm. have any proper education in education. Mm -hmm. So Chattanooga had a program called Project Inspire. And it's like a residency program where if you have a background in STEM or you are a career changer with a background in STEM, they will help you get your master's degree in one year. And then that same year, you're doing a residency, kind of like student teaching, but they progressively give you more responsibility. So you start out just watching. And then by the second semester, you're fully teaching classes. So I decided to pursue that program. And Chattanooga, I chose it because it was one of the I think maybe the only ones that fully paid for your degree, you just had to commit four years afterwards, which a lot of the programs you had to commit four years anyway, but they didn't pay for your degree. 
So that's when I made the decision to. It's a good come call. To, oh yeah, I was like, look, free degree. Let yeah. me go ahead and go for it. You do understand math, don't you? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so that's that's how I ended up here in Chattanooga. And I was always supposed to just be here for four years, finish out my commitment, and then travel internationally as a teacher. You know, a lot of people I talk to, and I'm one of them, when we got here to Chattanooga, said, I'll be here three, four years, and I'll go on. Mm -hmm. And I've been here 20-something years now. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So where did you teach when you got to town? I started out at Tyner High School. I was there for two years. And then I moved to East Ridge Middle School. I was there also for two years. And then they pulled my principal to another school. So I went along with her because she was an amazing leader. And so I was at Udua High School. For two years. During the second year was when, actually during my first year, I got pregnant. Um, And then (laughs) I gave birth literally as the world shut down. So April 1st is when my daughter was born. And then after that, I quit. (laughs) I quit, looked for another job. And then I went back to teaching because it was, it was, I I could not find another job. So you quit not to start Your business, you quit because you were frustrated with teaching, Yeah, but found that you couldn't find something appropriate for yourself and said, okay, I'm going to go back to teaching. There was nothing that paid enough for us to cover daycare and our other expenses. And so it wasn't for a lack of jobs necessarily. It was for a lack of quality jobs. jobs. Exactly. Living wage. Exactly. Exactly. So in all the qualifications that I had, I couldn't find a job. And when I say I applied to probably like 200 jobs in that year, I'm not joking. Which is bizarre. You've got a mathematics degree and a minor in Japan studies from Spelman College. You've traveled the world. You've got more experience than 99% of the people. You can't find a job that's appropriate. I couldn't find a job. Yeah. So I ended up going back to teaching and I wanted to finish out the year, but I was also dealing with postpartum at the time. And I did about three months and I quit my job again without a second job. Like my poor husband, I feel so bad. But you know, all through this, I was doing Cocoa Santa on the side. Okay. When did you start doing that as a side business? Yeah. So when I was at East Ridge High School, it's probably my third year into the world of education. I started Cocoa Santa, and it was random. My husband, he was my boyfriend at the time. We went to see my dad because he wanted to meet my dad and pretty much ask for my hand in marriage. And my dad said, "Didn't you want to start a chocolate factory?" And I was like. Oh, yeah, I did. (laughs) So that catapulted me into, okay, let me take this seriously and let me start. So I started in 2018. And when I started, I actually went through the launch program because I was overwhelmed doing research on how to start a business. Where do I go? What licensing do I need? There's a lot of information. I didn't know what applied to me, what applied to my industry. So I started to get support from launch. And launch is a local nonprofit that brings entrepreneurship to particularly uh, underrepresented communities, women, minorities, yes, and, and helps take you through that path and teach you how to start your business. Exactly. They literally like launch. So you're teaching at East Ridge. You decide to start doing your chocolate business on the side. Who are you selling to? Great question. I started really just promoting on Facebook. Um, I converted my personal Instagram to a business Instagram. And the first three years really was just me kind of figuring out what in the route I was doing, branding, all that, websites, what processes am I going to go through Like in terms of, okay, I'm going to make the chocolate. How am I going to get it to my customers? Where are they going to buy it from? And then also figuring out, how did I even make chocolate, right? I don't yeah. have a background in this. I'm not a baker. I'm not a cook. I can cook, but I can't bake. So it was trial and error. It took me two years to figure out that I had to even temper chocolate and what type of chocolate to temper. Is anyone teaching you this or you're doing all this on your own all on research? My own. 
Mm-hmm. So in, in your kitchen, trial and error? Yeah, essentially. So YouTube University, blogs. I read a lot of blogs yeah. and then just following other chocolatiers, particularly to see what they were doing. And if I was having issues, what they were doing to you know, solve their issues and kind of trial and error that way. It was an intense three years, but we gradually every year we would improve, improve, improve. And I remember the first year I made five hundred dollars and I was like, five hundred dollars. It doesn't sound like much, but. $500? Like hey, you people, were profitable. Yeah, people bought chocolate enough for me to make $500. Great. Um, so then the next year, we November and December as well, I think we did almost $5,000. I was like, okay, I might be onto something. And then the next year, we grew to like $9,000. I was like, okay, like if I'm able to do this in two months, imagine what I could do if I was all year. So I brought on a business partner from New York, got our partnership, our operating agreement like structured and done and brought her on. And then, sadly, after a year, she said she was ready to go. So I understood. And so... um, That had to be difficult for you because you put your trust into bringing in someone. They were obviously helpful and you brought the business to a certain level. And all of a sudden they go, okay, I'm done now. Yeah, it was. And I I understood why she left. Um, There was, you know, family things involved. And I understood. But I also understood that she moved here in the middle of a pandemic and she moved to a new city. And I knew it was hard. I knew it was so very hard. And I I knew what because I had built Coco Center from the ground up at at that point. So I knew the number of sacrifices you had to make. I don't know if she was ready for those type of sacrifices. It's a really open and empathetic way to look at disappointment. Yeah. Because I understood, I always wanted to look at things from her perspective mm-hmm. and not necessarily my emotional perspective. Because I, I mean, I told my husband, I, w- I cried over her more than I did my college boyfriend when we broke up. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm sure that made him happy. I mean, <laughs> your, your husband. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I was I was so emotional about it. But, you know, <laughs> we got it taken care of. She stuck out for about six more months afterwards, made sure we were in a great place. By then, we had hired our first employee, which is my younger brother. <laughs> And so she had made sure he was trained and comfortable. And then we parted ways, you know, bought out her shares. <laughs> oh, Lord. So that was, like I said, it's been hard, but got everything taken care of. Well, and if we could just talk a little bit more about the struggle, because one of the things I've tried to do with this podcast is show people that what you see, particularly mm-hmm. on social media, is not the struggle. And you've got the challenge being an immigrant to this country, of being a person of color, being a female and you're starting a business, you're having a child, trying to start your life and you're trying to work. And oh, yeah, let's start a business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I do this myself, but it's going to pay out because of the life and the purpose that I want in life. Talk a little bit about your business and where you want to take that in recognition of the role that your birth country plays. Absolutely. So I have a three-part plan, basically. I'm going to tell you all the tea. So part one, we've created this brand. And honestly, some of it is developing as I go. I don't know the end. But anyways, we created this luxury product because we wanted to showcase the best of what Ghana has to offer. The cacao beans that are used in our chocolates are currently from Ghana, but we don't process the chocolates ourselves because we don't have the equipment to do so. The equipment is very, 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 very expensive. And so we're trying to just grow as a brand now to prove that, hey, there's something here. People want quality chocolate. People want ethical chocolate. People want chocolate that has ownership roots in Ghana. So we're growing that brand. Then our plan is to find the funding to become Bean to Bar. That's something that we're working on to happen this year. Once we become Bean to Bar, the goal is to source from my family's farm in Ghana. Explain Bean to Bar real quick. 
yes, so bean to bar essentially means we are in charge of the whole process from the cacao bean to the chocolate bar. So would you bring the raw bean here roasted? Yeah, we would roast it here. So it would be fermented and dried in Ghana, packaged, exported, and then roasted. We would start the process with roasting. And then it goes through several processes before we get to the end. So would that be similar to a lot of these coffee shops that you see open up who roast their own beans? They're not sourcing their beans, but Mm -hmm. they're getting their beans and they're roasting. Yeah, and we will do the roasting, the grinding, and that grinding process can go there's several different machines. You can break it down just to one, but that can go anywhere from 12 to 48 hours just to grind it down to be as fine as you want it. Because the smoother it is, you know, the better the experience. What a labor-intensive product. Very. And someone who's enjoyed your chocolate, they're artistic, too. It really is a work of art that you're producing. Thank you. Thank you. It's very, very labor-intensive, which we're going to adjust some of our processes. So things are going to change once we become Bean & Bar because, you know, we can't always provide beautiful bonbons year-round. I think we're going to only do it for special occasions because they are so labor-intensive. And that's not something we can scale. And we need something to scale that we can grow. And so we'll make those changes when we get there. But after becoming Bean & Bar, sourcing from my family's farm, as we grow, we're going to grow there for a while. And as we grow, we have the ability to grow more cacao because we have land that's available. But we also have the ability to have other farmers join what we're doing. Cacao is plentiful. And if we're coming and saying, hey, we'll pay you double or oh, yeah. whatever, whatever that number is for us, because I don't know what it is yet. But if we're saying we're going to pay you significantly more than what you're making now. And this is me. I'm a Ghanaian, Right. Why not? Why wouldn't you? And having that direct connection will allow us to be able to say, hey, like, we're not just from Europe monitoring this, but this is my cousin monitoring, making sure that we're doing this in a sustainable way. There truly is no child slave labor. We're paying you enough so you don't need to use child slave labor and all the other things that come with exploitation and dealing with all of that. And we're doing this not as an outsider coming in, but as an insider making change in her home. I think that is key. A lot of times when you see people going in to save Africa, Africa doesn't necessarily need to be saved. We really need to kind of be just in a way, (laughs) might sound harsh, but we really need to be left alone so that we can do what we need to do without being punished. And one of the ways is with cacao. What if people just left us alone and let us do what we needed to do, right? How much more would Ghana prosper? I think that's a great choice of words because Africa's history, it's been exploited. 100%. I don't think anyone could or would argue that. Yeah. And to say, leave us alone. Literally. (laughs) Let us do it. Please. I mean, it's almost like a business. Let us focus on our business and let us do what we need to do. And in those terms of building your business, what's been the most frustrating thing for you and what's been the most rewarding thing for you through this entire process? I think the most rewarding is just seeing from where I started and where I am now, because I started by myself in my kitchen, not knowing what I was doing, no experience, tempering who, tempering what. My first batch almost killed my husband because I put so much cocoa powder on it. (laughs) He started choking. It was like the cinnamon challenge, right? So from going from there (laughs) to now we're landing corporate orders that are in the thousands of dollars. And now I have a team, right? I have a team of two full-time employees and then also just seeing the growth in terms of revenue and people who buy our chocolates. One year we had the Guardian order chocolates for their employees. Yeah, we had just yesterday an award-winning author from Chattanooga buy our chocolates to gift to publishers all over the U.S. Through this, we did a partnership with Uncle Nears, one of the fastest growing whiskey brands in the U.S., most awarded, yeah. right? So getting to like collaborate with them, meet his great, 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 
great granddaughter has been amazing. This journey has brought me where I never thought I could be. And to be able to think and create and see my ideas come to fruition, it feels like this is what God wants me to do with my life. It feels very purposeful. And I cannot wait until we're making more of a direct impact on the cocoa farmers. We're not anywhere near where we want to be yet, but I can't wait to get there. What a great sense of fulfillment. Absolutely. And not to say, like you were saying, the journey of entrepreneurship, it really is up and down. Just yesterday, I was crying and weeping in my office. (laughs) (laughs) So I know when there's highs, there's going to be lows, but that also tells me that there's going to be highs. And that's such an important point because there is a range of emotions. Mm -hmm. And and if you let those get to you, you're going to burn out quickly. I'm going to ask you one last question. And this is generally meant for someone older than you. Mm -hmm. But you've got a lifetime of experience in a very young body. What would you tell yourself? And I always tell your 25-year-old self, but that was only like two years ago for you. (laughs) What would you say to your 25-year-old self is important for a happy life? Man, okay. I would say, number one, just being very intentional about the people you put into your life as your support system. Everyone from my husband, my friends, to the people that I go to for advice, my business mentors, lawyers, etc. Building a support system and focusing on that has been key, getting me through some of the hardest moments. It's also okay if you're feeling a way to vocalize and communicate that. It's okay to cry. I cried a lot in my two years of postpartum depression. I cried a lot. But I was 25 when I got pregnant and 26 when I had her. So I tell her, hard times are coming, but Build that good support system. Lean on that support system. You can't do it all. You're not superwoman, despite what the stereotype about black women is. And it's okay to go to therapy. It's okay to get help. And it's okay if therapy is not working to get another therapist and another one until it does help. It's okay to take care of you before taking care of anyone else. And it's okay to do what brings you joy. And if you're going to work and you're crying every day when you come home and you can't even take care of your daughter, it's okay to leave. And I would tell her that. Mm, that is great advice. And I particularly like, it's important for you to take care of yourself. You know, when you're on an airplane and they talk about the cabin depressurizing, they always say, put your mask on first because you're no good if you're not helping yourself first. Yeah. Ella, this was a fascinating conversation. You're going to be highly successful with what you're doing. You've got a great story. Thank you for joining us on My Morning Cup. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Consta Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.